Welcome to Fick Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence Fick Research Team. Good morning, and welcome to the January 2024 edition of Masters of the Universe. Uh, I'm Eric Kazatsky, head of municipal strategy here at Bloomberg Intelligence and joined by my co-host, Karen Altamirano, also of BI. Um, you know, we're going to keep it simple and keep it in-house this month. And doing so, uh, we wanted to turn our attention to what's going on in some of the biggest story this year, at least for our market. And that's going to be the 2024 election. But more importantly, sort of some of the tax issues that are really going to impact, um, you know, some of the platforms that each candidate is going to be running on and, you know, what could happen regardless of which party uh, is the elected party come this November. And joining us to help dive into that is Andrew Silverman. Um, some of you who are in the chat already know Andrew, but for those of you who don't, Andrew Silverman is our governmental analyst and tax policy analyst here at BI. Just a little bit of background before coming to Bloomberg, uh, Andrew worked as a tax lawyer for PricewaterhouseCoopers uh, and Deloitte Tax, where he focused on tax planning for U.S. multinational corporations and private investment funds. And he's also a pretty smart guy. Uh, I had no idea <laughs> that he went to University of Michigan Law School and has an LLM in taxation from NYU Law. Man, so many titles. Andrew, welcome. Thank you for joining us this month. Uh, thank you, Eric. I, I don't know about the, the titles. Maybe maybe not so important, but... Ah, well, I mean, look, I mean, it's a lot of you after you. your name. It's, <laughs> that's true. I have to take you much more seriously now, uh, since you're a Michigan guy. There you go. <laughs> well, yes. So, yes, I'm, I'm very proud of I'm a, a second-generation uh, Michigan law guy, in fact. Oh, wow. That's very, yeah. very interesting. Okay. And what, what sort of law does uh, the elder Silverman practice? Uh, healthcare law. Wow. Much more boring right. than tax. If, if well, I do yeah. So, okay. Like, help our listeners understand how did you actually end up in tax law? Which I asked my wife because she's also an attorney and she said that is the most boring area of law that she could ever imagine. Now, I wouldn't take like her opinion as the sole opinion here, but how did you get into tax? Well, it's sort of a roundabout story. I uh, originally wanted to be uh, an MA lawyer. And mm -hmm. I did M&A and securities work for about uh, eight or 10 years. And then, uh, then I did fund work for a short period. And then the recession came, uh, the 2008-2009 okay. recession. And then I decided I wanted to get into something where, uh, you know, a type of law in which the economy really didn't make a difference, whether or not um, you could uh, be successful. And I thought, well, you know. Tax works in good times and bad times, so that's that's what I uh, that's what I decided to do. Got my LLM in tax at that point, yeah. so I was about halfway through my career. Yeah, recession-proof law. I like it. So you sort of you sort of looked ahead and you said taxes are going higher. I'm always going to be in need. There exactly. Yeah. Yes. And I find taxes to be fascinating. Uh, I'm biased, obviously, but yeah. Yeah. No, I think it comes across in your writing. And, and look, I think the, the folks who are in the mini chat where you chime in and, and help with all the tax questions sort of, you know, get that sort of passion that you have and bring to the subject matter. So indeed, it's always appreciated. And in fact, we've done a lot of collaboration work with you over the last several years um, that I think our readers have taken notice of. So that's also appreciated as well. So look, you know, I want to just sort of dive in. There's a lot to unpack as far as what's going on this year. And, you know, I think maybe the best thing to do is sort of let's start in November and then sort of like work our way forward. And in the frame of the conversation, I sort of want to sort of keep the onus on 
and dot, 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 how it impacts the muni market, right? So we put out a note um, last week, um, just sort of gaming uh, a couple of different scenarios, but you know maybe we can sort of talk about that a little bit more. Let's say that the two presumptive nominees, at least at this point, are Donald Trump and Joe Biden. So what are we looking at with a Donald Trump uh, presidential election? In terms of what the Republican plans are from a yeah. tax perspective? Yeah, correct. Right. Well, uh, so what the Republicans want to do is essentially uh, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act um, make that permanent, but also they want to do the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act uh, 2.0. Um, so in terms of making it permanent, uh, the big aspects of the plan, and, and part of this is in the, the framework, which I, which I suppose we'll get to in a sec, but yeah. um, they want to make uh, capital expensing permanent. They want to make uh, the partnership tax deduction permanent. Uh, they want to uh, uh, reverse some of the pay-fors and the, the, tax, the tax Cuts and Jobs Act, the, the uh, interest stripping uh, um, uh, provision that that requires people to uh, to use uh, EBIT rather than EBITDA to to calculate the cap, um, uh, things like that. It, w- it would cost about three and a half trillion dollars to do that. Uh, so I think that the big concern there is then uh, how would they figure out how to pay for all of that? Uh, of course, five trillion dollars, and I think they would be looking in every direction. Um, mm-hmm. But in terms of of uh, Donald Trump himself, he has been rather vague about his tax proposals, which is not surprising. Shocking. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he said that he wanted to reduce the, the corporate tax rate to 15%. He was going to pay for that. Is that 1, right. 5, 15? 15%. That's, yeah. Okay. So, so just, just as like, just sort of recap, right? So we had Tax Cuts and Jobs Act 2017. Corporate tax rate was reduced from what to what? Uh, reduced from 35% to 21%. Wow. Okay. So big, big decline. And now he's talking about going 21 to 15. That's right. Uh, Although recently he was, so he was going to pay for that with a 10% tariff across the board. Okay. Um, And now he's saying, actually, maybe 21% isn't so bad, but he could change his mind again. But, but the, the point is that uh, the corporate tax rate was reduced permanently. So we're, we're now, you know, we've gone from 35% to 21%. So we don't have to worry about that. Unless the Democrats get back in, we don't have to worry about that changing. It's not going to sunset. Yeah. So that's that's the important part. There are provisions, obviously, in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act that would sunset, like the right. state and local tax deduction cap or the mortgage interest deduction uh, reduction to seven hundred fifty thousand dollars from from a million dollars. So some of those things would automatically reverse back to pre Tax Cuts and Jobs Act law um, at the end of twenty twenty five. Yeah. And, of course, the Republicans want to uh, make those things permanent. And, in fact, with regard to the state and local tax deduction, there is a lot of clamor on the Hill for getting rid of the um, the $10,000 um, cap completely. In, 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 in other words, doing away with the state and local tax deduction completely. So, so going from unlimited to 10000 to zero, essentially. Right. Yeah. Okay. In fact, uh, Paul Ryan I mean, just had a, yeah. a panel the other day. A couple of days ago in which he suggested that would be the best way to pay for an increase in the earned income tax credit 
Uh-huh. So, okay. So that, look, that's a good segue. Um, and I sent you a link before we started just talking about obviously the latest Republican uh, bipartisan tax proposal, right? And they had a couple provisions there um, sort of looped into what you're just talking about. One is um, child tax care. And I think they discussed the earned income tax credit, but it was, you know, SALT had sort of raised its, its head again. And what was interesting to me is, you know, it's been so long that I sort of lost track of what the annual sort of benefit was to the federal government for actually putting that cap in place. And I think the numbers they laid out were about $116 billion a year by having that $10,000 cap in place, right, from what it was before, which was which is uncapped. What Do you have any idea what reducing the 10000 to zero, essentially, what additional monies that saves the government? Yeah, well, all in, uh, Paul Ryan said it was $2 trillion over, uh, over a decade. So, you know give or take about, uh, what, $200 billion a year. Okay, so you're telling me 10,000 to zero saves them. If it's 116, back at the envelope math, another like 84 billion then? Right. Interesting. Okay, I'm surprised it's even that high. So that, that really is interesting. So, all right, so all those people who, who are secretly pining for the unlimited cap to come back, if they should not be voting for Donald Trump, you're saying? Yeah. If they're voting on, if they're a single issue voter, right? So <laughs> it's possible that yeah. the Republicans could sweep, right? Yes. But what they would need to do is to be able to get a pretty substantial majority in the House, and and also a very substantial majority in the Senate, right? Because yeah. you need uh, you need two thirds um, in in the House and the Senate if you want to get over a over a veto, right? So if, if they win sure. the House and the Senate and Biden stays president, they'd have to, they'd have to pass something and then uh, get over a, a Biden veto. If they have the presidency and the House and Senate, then you worry about the Senate, whether or not they have 60 seats in the Senate, which is a pretty high bar. If they don't, then they have to use reconciliation, and that is a much more difficult process. And uh, I mean, obviously, they've done it before. That's how they, they passed the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act and the Inflation yeah. Reduction Act. So they can do it, but it gets a lot more complicated. So it sounds like it would be, you know, a positive win if Republicans win, at least for from from a muni perspective. You know, demand would be there for for the tax exempts. Um, if they if they don't reduce the corporate tax rate, I mean that would that would be no bueno for our market. Well, corporates really aren't buying much right now anyway because of the reduction to twenty one, but fifteen mm -hmm. would just be forget about it. So can you tell yeah. us a little bit about what um, what a what a Biden win would look like for for taxes? So. I think that the old, well, I don't want to disparage anybody, but I think the old way of thinking is the Republicans are in favor of having stronger state and local governments and a weaker federal government. Sure. And Democrats are in favor of having a stronger federal government and a weaker state and local structure. That's the old way of thinking. I think things have shifted quite a bit. I actually think the Republicans now, whether or not they want big government, they certainly want weaker state and local governments, right? And I think Democrats actually want stronger state and local governments, and that's indicative of their views towards municipal bonds too, right? They adopted the Build America Bond Program in the 2009 uh, American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. Yeah. Um, they, uh, you know, it was the Republicans that repealed uh, advanced refunding bomb, uh, bonds. They, the Build Back Better Act would have reinstated them. 
Um, yes. And Biden's Bipartisan Infrastructure Act created two new private activity bonds yeah. for broadband, pro uh, uh, broadband projects and carbon dioxide capture facilities. Um, and then if you think sort of more broadly, right, when, when, when you're, you know, with regard to like abortion, for example, um, the fear is now that Donald Trump comes in and then uh, puts into place a blanket across the country, uh, you know, pro-life sort of uh, template, right? So we've we've switched from sort of a 1960s mentality to say, okay, every state must be pro-choice to the fear that maybe Republicans come in and say, no, every state is going to be pro-life. And the Democrats are saying, no, 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 we want states to have the power to have whatever abortion legislation sure. that they want. And that that is true across the board, right? And, and with regard to taxation, if you uh, if you do if you uh, take away the the state and local tax deduction completely, you're limiting the ability of states to raise their their taxes, and that reduces their ability to make their own sorts of decisions. So I think the Democrats are actually much more in favor of uh, stronger municipal bonds than the Republicans are the opposite. And you know, three point five trillion dollars, they have to find some way to to fund the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act permanency and i think that uh municipal bonds could be um in their crosshairs and i would also point out yeah. that um the republicans are uh much more conservative than prior congresses right almost 75 percent of the republicans are part of the republican study committee which is fiscally speaking or or from a social standpoint when you say well, they're more conservative yeah i I say conservative. I suppose more populist is a, a better way to put it. Um, but you know, seventy-five percent of the Republicans are are members of the Republican Study Committee, and they put out their own budget. And yes. as part of the the RSC budget, they would do away with the state and local tax deduction that's in there. Um, and uh, uh, they would uh, they've actually this is kind of funny. It's, footnote ninety says they would do away with tax exempt municipal bonds issued by states and cities completely so so that's you know the, the core yeah. of the republican party um yeah. and that's not even talking about the more cons conservative wing the freedom caucus that's another 20 percent of the party i mean so, so there's some crossover but let me let me just sort of just interrupt for a second so if part of the tax cuts and jobs act reduced individual tax rates right like top tax brackets were capped correct yep and then they want to put those permanently but then on the other hand, you want to eliminate the tax exemption for municipal bonds, noodling this out. Wouldn't that almost be like a backdoor tax increase for taxpayers? Because at the end of the day, right, if I am, let's say, the city of Philadelphia and I can no longer sell bonds tax exempt, right? I'm now in the taxable market. And let's say that I pay uh, a, a, a lower yield than, you know, equally rated corporate bond, right, because of my risk profile. It's still more expensive than paying tax exempt yields. But when I just pass that on, um, at least in areas where I don't have like a hard levy cap in place to residents. I mean, yes. Yes. I mean, I think the likelihood is yes. But right. I think the, the Republican thinking is that they're going to pressure states and cities to reduce their tax rates because people will either just leave or they're going to refuse to, to pay those high taxes and lobby their governments to reduce them. 
I'd like to think that I understand math a little bit. How's all this getting paid for then? Right. So if we're eliminating the federal tax exemption for municipal bonds and then we want to turn around and pressure state and local governments to reduce taxes, wouldn't they just like you can't run massive deficits on the state and local level. So how, how does that get done? Well, there's uh, there's an old slogan from the 1980s, and I think this is what people have in mind of, of starving the beast. Right. If you don't have the money to pay for things they just go away. I think that's the thinking. Very interesting. What are your thoughts on uh, whether Democrats will bring back a Babs-like program? Ooh, is that possible? Yeah, sure. I mean, that was in the original version of the Build Back Better bill. And that was the template for the Inflation Reduction Act. So certainly- Remind, I mean, remind listeners, Andrew, like what, what were the exact provisions? What, what, what were sort of they thinking as far as bringing a subsidy uh, bond program back? I don't think it was exactly like a Babs 2.0, right? There were a little bit of nuance differentials. Oh, gosh, I'd have to, <laughs> I'd have to take a look at that again. <laughs> it's been a we while. Stumped it, Karen. <laughs> yes, I'm totally stumped on that one. Yeah. <laughs> All right. We will, we will follow up on a separate episode with the answer to that question, but we will just keep moving on right now. Okay, so another subsidy bond program could potentially be coming down the pike, which is a positive. Obviously, uh, that would come in the tax oil market, which I'm always a proponent of. Uh, a lot more liquidity, a lot more transparency, a lot more flexibility for issuers. So that's a good thing. Um, you know, let's sort of talk about, you know, what other changes you see from a federal standpoint that could impact the municipal market? Oh, gosh. Um, hmm. Well, uh, I guess, you know, you and I wrote about uh, the, the 501c3 exemption threat coming from the, the Ways and Means Committee. Uh, is that something you'd like to talk about? Yeah, absolutely. So I was, I was leading you there. I was leading okay. you. <laughs> <laughs> so, you picked up what I'm putting down. I like it. Yeah, so this is interesting. So the, the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, Jason Smith, recently said that he thought Certain universities, Harvard and Cornell and Penn, uh, were not fulfilling the responsibilities that they needed to fulfill in order to get the tax exemption under Section 501c3. And so he said, well, heck, if you're not going to do that, then we're not going to hold up our end of the bargain. We're not going to give you the tax deduction. And the importance isn't so much that the universities don't have to pay tax because, in fact, tax exemption institutions still pay tax, right? They pay tax on unrelated business taxable income, UBTI. Yeah. Um, the, the big threat to universities is that uh, the donors wouldn't get a tax deduction for their donations. Correct. And, and I feel like a lot of people don't know that. Yeah, that was a very interesting point. So what, what would that mean dollars and cents to a school like Harvard, right? Like how much would be at risk there you know, potentially. And that's just assuming that people are solely giving for the tax exemption. Some people just may really love Harvard and have a, an alliance to their, their alma mater. So, I mean, what, what could be at risk? Oh, we're talking about the, the vast majority of their revenue. They'd have to totally shift their business model. And we're talking about, you know, billions and billions of dollars a year. I mean, they're, they're big corporations, essentially. And they would have to say, well, okay, all of our revenue is coming from source A. We don't have that source anymore. Now, you know, presuming that people only give for the deduction, people would, you know, some people would still give and not get the deduction, and that's fine. Um, but the majority, I think, of those 
donations would probably dry up or reduce, and the university would have to look for some other way of funding itself. And there are some universities that are publicly offered. There's a, a company um, that uh, Concordia, for example, and I can't remember the name of the other one that they own, but those universities rely almost solely on tuition to pay for themselves, so they'd have to completely shift their model. Um, but in doing that, they would actually open up some other possibilities for themselves, like they would be able to lobby Congress, they would be able to participate in campaigns, and so it completely changes the way that a university could operate. And in fact, this entity is obviously publicly offered, and it's it's composed of of are comprised of, of um, a group of universities, you could even see some of these Ivy League institutions merging in order to protect themselves because if they don't have that income from donors, they're going to have to figure out some other way and maybe merging is the best way to do it. And so it could completely change the face of higher education. I mean, look, a school like Harvard has upwards of 50 billion in its endowment. I mean, one would think that they could live off the corpus, you know what I mean, and, and just draw the principal as far as a revenue stream for quite some time, um, assuming no change in enrollment figures, right? I mean, it seems like they have a pretty long ramp, if, even if that change happened. Well, yes and no. I mean, the vast majority of their endowment, they can't tap for current expenses. Correct. And most of the giving is tied up in some way. The donors say, I want you to only use it for X, right? Or I only want you to use it to to pay for this particular professor's salary, you know, for example. Um, so they wouldn't be able to pay for like you know, janitorial services. I mean, nobody gives to Harvard and says, please pay for the cleaning of the residence halls, right? So they have to pay for those expenses. And if it's not going to be people giving, getting a deduction, then they're gonna have to figure some other way to, to pay for it. In your opinion, what do you think is the likeliness of, of private universities losing their, their tax exemption? It seems extreme. and and unlikely? Uh, maybe. I think, actually, the likelihood is moderate. I, mean, I suppose if the, the Republicans win control of the House and the Senate and Donald Trump becomes president, I think it's actually likely. I think they've sort of painted themselves into a corner saying, we're going to do this, you know, and you universities have to back down or else we're going to change everything. I think they would have to make an example out of a school. I think they, they could revoke their exemption and maybe they only last a year or two or maybe they only revoke it part way or something but I think they need to make an example out of a university and I think that Jason Smith for example the, the chairman of ways and means is more than willing to to uh to do that without yeah. sort of a second thought you um in a, in a note that you had recently published you had talked about um losing tax exemption could actually lower universities effective rate can you talk a little bit about that yeah, so so that's interesting. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, tax-exempt institutions still pay tax. They pay quite a bit of tax, billions of dollars a year. And that's because they earn unrelated business taxable income. And the tax rate, I think the last, I think it was from 2017, the, the last information we have from the IRS, their tax rate is something like 28%. And obviously, corporations don't suffer a tax rate that high. Some corporations have either negative tax rates or they have single-digit tax rates, and I think that universities as research institutions could use the same mechanisms that a Pfizer or a, or a General Electric uses to reduce their tax rates, in other words, the research and development expense deduction, their research institutions. So I think they could reduce their, their tax 
their tax rate uh, quite a bit, and maybe they pay zero tax, or maybe they pay a much, much lower effective tax rate than they are right now. What happens to the, the real estate associated with these universities, right? And, and, and my mind goes to like Yale, um, you know, where the vast majority of the real estate in, in that city is tax exempt, right? So Harper's not able to levy any tax against it because university owned. What happens if the exemption goes away? Is that almost like a, a windfall for these local municipalities? Maybe, or maybe not. It depends. I mean, it, it's <laughs> very non-committal. Thank and you. Even, no, no. I, you know, uh, the, if the federal government makes a determination about 501c3, that really doesn't affect states unless they want to be affected by it, right? When the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act was adopted, states decided whether or not they're going to adopt the whole thing as one, you know, one false swoop, or whether they're going to pick and choose which provisions they wanted. And so this would be the same situation if Massachusetts wants to tax the property there or, you know. Uh, but it's only tax or, exempt because the university's tax exempt, unless I have a misunderstanding about that, right? But again, yes and no. Yes, I think it's based on that 501c3 exemption. And if it gets withdrawn, then one would think that Massachusetts would then act to tax them, but they could choose not to. It's not automatic. They're not forced to not tax, or they're not forced to tax, or yeah. they could do whatever they want to, right? They're, they're a sovereign state. Yeah. Interesting that they could sort of pick and choose different, like, almost like a buffet. You know what I mean? Like, we want to take away this part of the 501c3 exemption, but not this part. That's most states. Some states are automatic. I can't remember, uh, but it's it's a minority of states. In fact, some states are actually uh, they've they've adopted their uh, tax system based on um, tax systems that are years and years old, like the 1954 Act. Yeah. Um, so you know, whenever Congress passes something new, they they could choose or not choose it because they are using a system that's you know decades old. Yeah. So it's interesting. I mean, we go through this sort of gyration every four years or so where everybody in my industry runs around screaming that the exemption's under threat. And, um, you know, most often I just sort of dismiss it and sort of like chicken little. But I think this is probably the first time I could actually see the groundwork being laid to really attack the exemption. Um, and, and look, it scares me much less than I think other people who don't sort of see the forest through the trees about what it could potentially, how it could benefit our industry. But I mean, do you view what's going on with higher education as sort of the first sort of, um, you know, salvo? Like, could this, if the if higher education 501c3 exemption is pulled away, would that just be like a slow erosion of the rest of the exemption rather than just ripping the Band-Aid off all at once? Hmm. I don't see it as as a a warning shot as much as I see it as an indication that one should start thinking more broadly, right? You can't, you can't say this thing is going to last forever. Um, yeah. Everything is temporary and the Republicans want to make a big change in tax policy and then they're going to have to, um, they're going to have to make some big decisions. And, you know, remember this has been done before in 1986 when, when Ronald Reagan, reform the tax code. He got rid of a ton of exemptions. I don't think 
the municipal bond exemption was one of them per se. But um, then those things sort of crept back in again, right? The corporate tax rate started rising because they brought in all these exemptions again. But the best way to reduce the corporate tax rate is base broadening. And that's what that would be. Yeah. So do you see individual tax rates going up, you know, further just kind of to be able to pay for all this? I mean, it almost has to, right? I mean, these huge federal deficits that we're running right now it just seems unsustainable. Um, maybe I think it's very difficult for the Republicans to reduce the corporate tax rate without also reducing the majority of individual tax rates. So I think that's accurate. I, you know, inevitably, so <clears throat> what Europeans rely on more than anything else is that, right? They don't have very high corporate tax rates because of that. They don't have, um, they have higher, higher than we do in terms of uh, individual tax rates, but it's mainly the VAT that yeah. brings in most of their revenue. So I think they have it's higher income tax rates, point. you're saying? Yeah. Interesting. For the, especially for the wealthy. Well, okay. What's, what's the break point on, I guess, wealth measurement for Europeans? Is it the same as we define here as far as income? Uh, I mean, it differs by country. I'd have to take a look at it. And yeah. remember, I don't, uh, most of the time, don't cover individual tax. So I haven't, I haven't looked at it recently. But, you know, the majority of uh, corporate tax rates are just slightly above our 21%. You know, I mean, they pretty much max out at 25%. And that's why we needed to reduce our tax rates because it was, you know, our corporations were uncompetitive compared with their corporations. But again, if you bring in the majority of your revenue from that, it doesn't matter if you reduce your corporate tax rate because that's not where you're getting your revenue from. And the United States really only gets a small proportion of its revenue from from corporate tax as well. It gets the majority of its revenue from individual tax. Okay. But maybe it's controversial. I think inevitably the United States is going to have to rely on that. Well, that's uh, my follow-up question, right? I mean, do you think that at some point we adopt a similar tax? Everybody else has. <laughs> we're the only right. We're the only wealthy country just to have a VAT. Is there is there a particular reason why we don't? I mean, I'm I'm just completely you know ignorant when it comes to this subject matter in particular. That's a dirty word. We we think about we relate VAT to socialism. Okay. So if we in, introduced a VAT, we would call it something else. We wouldn't call it a VAT. We call it a water tax adjustment, for example. <laughs> I mean that's that's what Paul Ryan was was calling his. Um, his major revenue raiser, his original plan, he wanted to have this import tax. But an import tax is not so different from a VAT. It's just a VAT that gets passed on indirectly to consumers. So, um, you know, obviously we wouldn't call it a VAT. we call it something else. But it's a federal sales tax. And whether it's a federal sales tax that applies directly to consumers or it's a, a tax that applies to corporations that's passed on to consumers. You know, even the corporate tax rate is in a sense like that, right? Most sure. corporations are able to pass on those costs. So it's not as scary. It's not such a huge revolution in taxation as people have made out. I think it would be really a small step. But Americans don't like to think of themselves as Europeans. Uh, <laughs> Socialist, yes, that's yes. right. Yes. Are there any other issues on your mind that 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 we should be aware of that 
that could impact the meeting market. Yeah. Any like sort of like black swans in the in the back of your mind from a tax standpoint that could, you know, you're like, it really couldn't happen, but if it did, it would be crazy. Oh gosh. Um like you know what's gonna be interesting is to figure out how all of the population migrations affect voting in the next election. Not not really. I mean, sort of a tax issue, sort of not a tax issue, but people working from home and those some of those changes, I think, are permanent in, in where people move to. Yeah. And that, that could actually change the landscape of, of voting and could affect whether or not the Democrats or Republicans take the White House and, and take control of Congress. And those things, you know, some of them happened four years ago. Some of them happened within the past two years. But I think at this point, a lot of those migrations have happened. Yeah. And so, we'll, you know, we'll see what the impact is. Um, but we know that Florida has much higher tax revenue than it used to, and Texas has much higher tax revenue than it used to, and especially New York City and other big cities have much, much lower tax revenue than they used to, mostly because the wealthy have moved away. Some of them have moved back, but not everybody, certainly. I mean, when uh, the mayor of, of New York City, Mayor Adams, came into office, the very first thing he did was fly down to Florida to try to get people to come back again. Obviously, they didn't. <laughs> but, um, but, I mean... That indicates that they know that the, the city is about to hit a wall in terms of yes. funding itself. Well, and they have a lot more unforeseen expenses, um, especially like migrant housing that, you know, really wasn't an issue three years ago um, that they're contending with now. That would be several billion dollars over the next, you know, three fiscal periods. So, you know, sort of combined lower revenues, higher expenses. Yeah, that, that's a problem I think a lot of cities are sort of facing now. Exactly. The, the other interesting threat, I think, is that the federal government could start introducing the same taxes that states and cities have, like a marijuana tax or a gambling tax or something like that. And when the federal government does that, it makes things too expensive for people to purchase. And so it just reduces tax revenue for everybody. I mean, some of that tax revenue would be taken by the federal government. The states would have to reduce their revenue in order to take into account the federal government's tax. But uh, those sorts of things, you know, when the federal government introduces a new tax, it generally hurt states and cities. Well, and I always sort of believe in like an equilibrium theory when it comes to that, right? You know, the more tax you put on something, let's say like marijuana or gambling, you know, it, it's going to get to the point where you're just going to drive it to, you know, sort of a, a black market or underground gray market uh, for people to do business because they don't have to pay a tax. Exactly. That's yeah. right. <clears throat> the argument has always been, well, the quality is going to go down or, you know, nobody wants to violate the law. But I think Really, it comes down to price. You know, if, yes. if the legal stuff is just way too expensive, people are going to say, I don't want it. I want to get it some other way. You know, they're not going to yes. say, oh, I'm not going to do this anymore. They're going to say, okay. I'll figure out some other way to do it. And especially with regard to marijuana, there are these networks in place already. So it's going to mm -hmm. be, it's hard for the state to get people to switch to something that's legal anyway. And then if you jack up the price that much, people are going to say, oh, I'm, not, I'm just not going to do this anymore. Why would I? So, I mean, I know this is probably more of like a, a Nathan Dean question, but since we're on the subject matter just real quick, um, I know that some of the hang up, at least regarding the federal legalization, has really been around banking. 
um, and some of the provisions in the Safe Banking Act. Um, and it seems like every time that sort of comes up for, for vote or, or further discussion, it sort of gets punted. Do you see, um, you know, headway in 2024 in regards to, to that? Because, you know, we sort of view that as sort of the, the, the last bastion of, you know, holding back the legality of some of this stuff. Yeah, I don't know what Nathan's current view on it is. I think he thinks that it's inevitably inevitably going to be adopted. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if it's this year or next year. There's growing acceptance on the part of the Republicans who have sort of dragged their feet on this that it should happen. Yeah. But that doesn't necessarily mean there's going to be legalization, right? This is just a sort of small liberalization sure. of marijuana policy. Yeah. And I actually – so. The big question right now is not so much the, the safer the safer banking acts. The discussion right now is in terms of rescheduling or descheduling, and that actually has a huge tax impact. Yes. Um, and then if you do that, then you don't really need to legalize. In fact, I think I've written on this before. Then legalization becomes harmful because then you need to introduce a tax. I think. I think the two things go together. Tail wags the dog. You need the revenue. You adopt a marijuana tax. The only way to do that is to legalize it. Yeah, I mean, it seems like some of the the revenue numbers we've seen coming from states that already um, you know have it legally available, they're, they're not impressive, and they actually have seemed to have been on the decline over the last couple of fiscal periods, which is sort of interesting because you know in my mind I'm like, all right, more people are working from home, you know, it might introduce <laughs> the opportunities, you know what I mean, for more recreational activities, but that seems not to be happening. So, you know, and then when we talk about banking availability for, for that, you know, my mind also goes to our sector, you know, could those revenues be securitized if they were predictable and had some sort of consistency, which right now they don't. That's right. I just, I think the black market is just too big. In fact, so one of, one of the things we've surmised is that the rise in high quality marijuana isn't coming from Mexico or you know other countries are are you know shipping it into the United States. It's actually coming from the United States, right? It's legally grown marijuana that can't that has no place to go within that state from Washington or California. Yeah. Um and these sorts of things happen when you legalize it in some places and it's not legalized in other places, you're gonna have this impact on supply and demand. And in fact, if you, if, if you do legalize it across the country, remember, you know, prohibition is a, is a sort of a similar template. You can say, oh, you can sell alcohol everywhere. But look, some counties still don't sell alcohol, right? Almost a century after prohibition has ended. So you could imagine a situation which the federal government says it's legal, but then there are a whole bunch of states that say, no, nah, it's legal, you know, somewhere else, but not here. We've decided it's not going to be legal here. And then you get this problem with the black market that's sort of insurmountable. There's only so much you can do to tamp it down. We don't live in a society where you can build these huge walls and stop things from coming in. So the government already spends a ton of money on drug enforcement. And it hasn't really had a huge impact, right? Nope. Um, So I think if you legalize it, then you need to fund the effort to destroy the black market to sort of force people into buying it legally. And when you do that, then you get into the cycle where, okay, well, we have to raise the tax to be, you know, 25% or 
thirty-five percent, something like that, and then it it kills all of the um, the demand at the state level because if you tack on the the state level tax too, you're talking about fifty percent taxes or seventy percent taxes, right? Nobody's going to yeah. pay that, and then of yeah. course that funds the black market and then you get into the cycle where it's like well why would anybody go to the legal stuff so legalization at the federal level could end up being a horrendous thing whereas if you just change the schedule if you're trafficking drugs then um you can't if your business is trafficking drugs then you can't uh take ordinary and necessary business deductions those are below the line deductions you can't you can't deduct your expenses like any other business now, you can still reduce your revenue. You can still take cost of goods sold reductions in, in revenue, but you can't take your ordinary necessary deductions. But if marijuana companies were able to, like any other company, then that would be a huge boost to the industry. And you could do that simply by changing where marijuana is in the, the schedules for the Drug Act. Right now, it's just in Schedule 1 alongside like opium and uh, heroin. If you moved it to Schedule 3, alongside like codeine, then that yeah. changes everything from marijuana. What a, what a, what a interesting conversation. We've covered everything <laughs> from the election to marijuana legalization. That's right. <laughs> yes. This is, this is what you get from the University of Michigan, expertise in all fields. So <laughs> they have the hash bash, what can I say? <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, this has been awesome. And you. you know, I envision us probably following up when we get closer to November, just to see if anything's changed and we could do a follow-up to this. It's been a great conversation. Yeah. Thank you, Andrew. All right, thank Take you. Care. All right. Okay, bye. Bye.